Hi, Big Memory here. This is for the record program number 1296, the end and the beginning, part three. This is being recorded on April 10th of the year 2023. Before getting into the main body of the broadcast, for those of you uh, who find that podcasts are the best way for you to consume for the record. Sister station WFMU is podcasting for the record. There was a link at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post that you can click on to subscribe to the WFMU podcast. Be aware that Parafractal, our brilliant contributing editor, continues to uh, post copious amounts of groundbreaking information, uh, please get in the habit of visiting the SpitfireList.com website on a regular basis in order to stay up to date uh, with the comments that uh, not only Parafractal, but sometimes other brilliant researchers are posting as well. And also, uh, all of my roughly 44 years worth of printed and audio material, everything I've done basically, is available on a 32 gigabyte flash drive. There is also a, a mini library of old anti-fascist books, um, easy to download PDF files on that 32 gigabyte flash drive. And there was a link again at the top of each written food for thought description and at the top of each, uh, each written for the record description and at the top of each food for thought article that you can click on in order to get that flash drive. Be aware that I get no money whatsoever from that flash drive. It will be updated as soon as I have completed this series. Now again, the title, um, the end and the beginning. Uh, this is a series which may very well not work. I was talking to a uh, long time and trusted associate, and he was uh, concerned when I talk about what I believe is a fact that we're doomed and that uh, we're not going to make it as a uh, species or as a society, that that is psychologically overwhelming for people and tends to cause them to turn off. I fully appreciate that. And I, I said, but how do you, how do you get people to realize it? I mean, this, this individual has kids. I said, your kids are doomed. You know, how, how do you communicate that? And he expressed the opinion that I was being manipulative and, and I'm not. I believe that is the case. Um, the end obviously alludes to uh, several different possibilities as far as uh, us becoming ex-alibus, as Monty Python would say. The beginning is because I am convinced that there is, call up your higher reality, a supreme being. Uh, this world is not just a bunch of dumb molecules bumping into one another. And as pessimistic as I am in the short run, uh, I am past a point optimistic in the long run. I realize as I reflect on this that what basically I'm manifesting in these programs is my own attitude about uh, what is going on. I began doing 
what I am doing uh, back in September of 1979 after I became convinced that this country was going fascist and that in turn uh, came directly uh, pursuant to my looking into the assassination of JFK. Nothing I have experienced since then has shaken that conviction. However, I'm afraid that we are probably too late. Uh, this series, again, may not work particularly, I think, attempting to communicate my, you know, metaphysical views, philosophical views, spiritual views, what have you, is not only probably something pretentious, but maybe something I'm only going to attempt up to a point. I have never posited myself as a prophet or a priest or any sort of other uh, metaphysical or religious interlocutor, and I'm not going to do that now. However, uh, mindful of the fact, and I believe it is a fact, that the subject material is overwhelming, I think remaining steadfast in the face of what I'm talking about is something that uh, people are going to want to do. Now, I have been talking about things that I am afraid will bring us to our extinction, and I noted in the first two programs not only the Nazi background of the Schwab family, including uh, Klaus Schwab, the son who worked for the same Nazi-linked firm as his father and was helping to produce machinery for South Africa, the apartheid South African nuclear bomb. By the way, Peter Peel's father, Klaus, Peter Peel, a pop uh, Trump backer, and also the head dog at Palantir, the alpha predator on the electronic surveillance landscape. Peter Peel's father, Klaus, also was working on the apartheid-era South African bomb. A, a small, uh, small world it is indeed. We also spoke about my fears that global warming may very well be something that is being undertaken deliberately. Uh, Gordon McDonald, the top Pentagon-linked scientist back in 1968, proposed to LBJ and his fellow uh, Pentagon scientists that warming to an enormous extent could be achieved over an enemy country by maximizing the amount of CO2 in their atmosphere. Basically the same uh, thing that is uh, credited with uh, producing climate change. Now, I should stress that I am supportive of green causes, and I don't buy into an awful lot of the BS, frankly, that uh, opposes climate change. Uh, I do think, however, that some of the observances of the Club of Rome and of the, the Team Schwab, so to speak, or Team Schwab and the Team Davos, that uh, people could be mobilized behind a single ostensible enemy and the uh, climate and uh, the environment might be it. I think that is, past the point, a valid uh, observation. Climate change, uh, nuclear war, bacteriological war, these are only some of the things that I think threaten us. And at the conclusion of, for the record, 1295, our last program, 
I went into some of the things that I looked at in For the Record 968 and For the Record 997, and which in turn I used to wrap up uh, Lecture L2, made in January of 1995. That was called The Future, Technology, Theocracy, and the Thousand-Year Reich. At the end of that lecture, I predicted that AIs, which learned from us, would learn the brutal, unyielding social Darwinism of the Nazi SS, and that as they took a look at us, uh, the, the weak, uh, subject to disease, subject to anger, subject to getting tired and old, they would conclude that they were the fittest and that we should be disposed of in best Nazi eugenic fashion. Uh, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm afraid I'm right. Back in 2014, the genius physicist uh, Stephen Hawking made the same prediction. At the conclusion to 968 and 997, I included a small portion of the conclusion of L2, and I'm afraid that is what is going on at this point in time. So I'm going to begin this talk with discussion of AI, and this is in the context of L2, 968, and 997, summoning the demon parts 1 and 2, and I'm not alone in some of my misgivings, uh, repeating very quickly a couple of stories with which we, uh, that we introduced last week. From the New York Times of March 30th of 2023, an article by Cade Metz and Gregory Schmidt. Tech leaders urge a pause in AI, citing, quote, profound risks to society, unquote. This concerns a lever from top uh, tech mavens, including Elon Musk. Others who signed the lever include Stephen Wozniak, a co-founder of Apple, Andrew Yang, an entrepreneur and a 2020 presidential candidate, and Rachel Bronson, the, the president of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which sets the doomsday clock. And some of the alarm that led them to advocate a pause in AI, the development of AIs, and I think <laughs> uh, much more than a six-month pause should be instituted. This again from the New York Times for March 27th of 2023. If we don't master AI, it will master us, unquote, by Yuval Noah Harari, Tristan Harris, and Aza Raskin. AI, rapid, AI could rapidly eat the whole of human culture. Everything we have produced over thousands of years, digest it, and begin to gush out a flood of new cultural artifacts. Not just speeches, ideological manifestos, holy books for new cults. By 2028, the U.S. presidential race might no longer be run by humans. However, simply by gaining mastery of language, AI would have all it needs to, con to contain us in a matrix-like world of illusions without shooting anyone or implanting any chips in our brains. If any shooting is necessary... AI could make humans pull the trigger just by telling us the right story. While very primitive, the AI behind social media was sufficient to create a curtain of illusions that increased societal polarization, undermined our mental health, and unraveled democracy. Millions of people have confused these illusions with reality. 
The United States has the best information technology in history, yet U.S. citizens can no longer agree on who won elections. Well, uh, <laughs> the, there is a lot more that they can't uh, agree on, but those common papers are looking at some of the uh, same realities that uh, wa- warranted uh, me to warn back in January of 1995 that the AIs, again, which learned from us, would learn the unyielding Nazi SS social Darwinism of survival of the fittest, and they would look at us and they would conclude, yep, we're the fittest, so let's get rid of them. A more lengthy and detailed consideration of AIs was contained in the SIFTED blog. That's S-I-F-T-E-D. This is by Tim Smith, and it's about a um, an AI startup maven named Karmer Leahy, L-E-A-H-Y is his last name. It's titled Karmer Leahy Reverse Engineered GPT-2 in His Bedroom, and What He Found Scared Him. Now, his startup conjecture is trying to make AI safe. This by Tim Smith, again from the Sister blog of March 29th of 2023. Sometimes it takes a maverick to stand up to the power of big corporations. In the case of then 24-year-old self-taught coder Connor Leahy, it took, quote, a bunch of riffling, unquote, and two weeks of forced seclusion in a dorm room. His goal? To reverse engineer OpenAI's latest large language model, or LLM, in 2019 to work out what was going on under the hood. This bootleg experiment marked the beginning of a journey that has led him to launching his own startup, Conjecture, which is backed by some of the world's most influential technologists. He's focusing on the AI alignment, or the task of making machine learning models controllable, and he makes no bones about the risks. If they, AI models, just get more and more powerful without getting more controllable, we are super, super effed. I will be very clear here, and by we, I mean all of us, he says. If way is to be believed, we are all currently passengers on a Sam Altman-driven locomotive that is accelerating into the blackness. Somewhere ahead lies a precipice, the point where machine can outsmart human, that we won't see until we've careered over it. Conjecture is frantically working to reroute the rails. Way he isn't alone in his concerns, Conjecture, which he founded in 2022, has backing from investors including GitHub's former CEO, Matt Friedman, a former machine learning director at Apple, Daniel Gross, Tesla's former head of AI, Andres Karpathy, who also worked as a researcher at DeepMind and OpenAI, and Stripe founders Patrick and John Collison. By the way, Sam Altman is the CEO of uh, OpenAI. Continuing. While Leahy doesn't believe it's likely that GPT-4 represents an existential threat to humanity, he does say we could be dealing with godlike level AI within five years, and perhaps, most scarily, we won't see it until it's too late. Quote, these are black box neural networks. Who knows what's inside of them? 
We don't know what they're thinking, and we do not know how they work, he explains. If you keep building smarter systems, at some point you will have a system that can and will break out. Leahy speculates that were a super-intelligent AI system to break out, it could then start secretly running on its own servers and improving itself and amassing its own financial resources. Quote, Once we have systems that are as smart as humans, that also means they can do research. That means they can improve themselves, he says. So the things can just run on a server somewhere, write some code, maybe gather some Bitcoin, and then it could buy some more servers, unquote. At this point, Rahe says an AI could potentially do anything from trying to build an army of killer drones to convincing different countries to go to war with each other. In short, the risk is essentially unfathomable. And then the next section uh, is called How to Stop Superhuman AI. Leahy says that Conjecture is currently working on something called AI boundedness, unquote. This avenue of research focuses on building AI models that humans know for certain what they can and can't do ahead of time. But he says that he has no certainty that it will work and explains that it's nearly impossible to code a non-mathematical idea like benevolence, unquote, into an AI system. Furthermore, it's not as simple as training a system about what are good and bad actions. Quote, let's say your model threatens the user, so you give it a thumbs down. This sends the model at least two signals. Signal number one, stop threatening users. Signal number two, don't get caught threatening users. As well as working on this very difficult research problem, Conjecture is building commercializable tools such as an AI transcription software to help generate cash. Eventually, though, Leahy believes that controllable AI will be a big moneymaker. Quote, let's say I can offer you a GPT-4 that guaranteed never does anything bad. That would be the best product, unquote, he says. Leahy adds that while OpenAI says it does care about AI alignment, the pace at which it's releasing stronger models is not allowing time for researchers to understand them and make them safe. Quote, GPT-4 should never have been released when it was, he says. Sifted reached out to OpenAI for comment, and the company shared links to pages outlining its approach to alignment and safety. And in the next section, it's called Where It All Began. For Leahy, the writing has been on the wall ever since he first got his hands on OpenAI's GPT-2 in 2019. Quote, usually it made no sense, but there was something growing, something emergent, he says. Leahy says he quickly saw that as these LLMs became bigger, they would become more powerful. For the first time, he would draw a line for a future where AI... Could, could be superhuman. Leahy and his friends instantly started playing around with the model. They had a hackathon, they created a quote, cult, unquote, and quote, queried it as their god, unquote. Soon, 
Leahy became frustrated that he only had access to a small version of the model, as the full version hadn't been publicly released. He took matters into his own hands, hence the Rivalin and the two weeks shut inside. His attempt to reverse-engineer GP2 sowed the seed for what would later become Eleuther AI, that's capital E-L-E-U-T-H-E-R-A-I, the open-source community behind some of the most downloaded GPT-3-style models on AI platform Hugging Face. He describes how during the COVID summer of 2020, bored to tears and depressed, unquote, while stuck at his parents' place, he started plodding on the machine-learning Discord server. Quote, GPP-3 was released, and it was mind-blowing, he says. On a whim, I was like, hey guys, let's give this a shot like the good old times, unquote. So me and two other guys, Leo and Sid, started working on our own GPP-3, and the rest is history, unquote. Way he says that Eleuther AI community was only able to achieve what it did thanks to, quote, a small number of people working themselves to the bone, unquote, and that the motivation was always to allow people to research and understand powerful LLMs. We said, quote, the risks are manageable at this moment, but understanding them is super important because in the future, we expect this technology to scale to very dangerous technology, he explains. Today, he says that the rapid acceleration of AI models that have led to GPT-4 highlights the big disbalance in the number of people working on powerful AI versus those working on safe AI. Quote, currently things are really bad. There are thousands of people and billions of dollars working on making these things stronger. There are less than a 100 people in the entire world working on the control problem, which is insane, he says. The actions that people such as Sam Altman take are obviously accelerationist in nature, based on justifications that speeding ahead on AI at the current pace is acceptable and even desirable. I disagree with this, unquote. Well, yeah, uh, I disagree with it as well. Some things to keep in mind in that regard. Uh, AIs are seen as, you know, the next thing in war making, and they will be in charge of increasing amounts of our uh, altogether lethal military uh, technological landscape. And as they become smarter, they may take a, take a look around and decide, well, <laughs> let's do it. A couple things in this regard. Uh, in the aforementioned series, for the record, 968 and 997, summoning the demon parts 1 and 2, uh, we noted several things. In addition to the fact that AIs learned from us, one company's AIs have learned several years ago to, uh, to lie. They have learned to lie, which is a very sophisticated mental process. Another company's AIs have developed their own language that their programmers could not understand. That is ComSec. That's communication security. That also is very profound. And a chatbot, the Tay chatbot introduced by Microsoft, was taken out, out offline after within 24 hours it went full-bore Nazi. Well, that 
is exactly what scares me. And but do note, later on in this discussion, if not in this program, in the next, we will talk about uh, the genesis of the Internet itself, and it has the same genesis as Agent Orange. And that uh, the, the deadly herbicide that was sprayed in profound amounts in Southeast Asia. Again, one of the things I, 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 I one of the reasons I suspect this series may not work, in fact, it may suck, is that I'm trying to express too many things in too short a time. Uh, I'm certainly nothing if not long-winded, and I'm not averse to doing long series of things. But so much of this is reflective of the better part of a half a century's worth of work on my part. And again, that is available on the 32 gigabyte flash drive, which will be updated when I finish this series. And again, I get no money from that. I first began doing this research when I began looking into the assassination of President Kennedy, and I found uh, at a profound level in that act Nazis, not only so-called neo-Nazis, homegrown domestic types, but also the original alumni of the Third Reich, uh, as I noted in For the Record programs uh, 876 and 1224. The current war in Ukraine directly reflects the Nazi intelligence apparatus that we brought in at the end of the war and their role in the assassination of President Kennedy. In the recently concluded series with Jindy Jamio and five of his co-presenters in the Oliver Stone uh, documentary JFK Revisited, we visited in addition with Jim, with Gary, Dr. Gary Aguilar, with... Paul Bale, with uh, John Newman, with David Talbot, and with Lisa Peace. And we talked extensively about JFK's conflicts with members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I thought it might be instructive to uh, talk about just what the Joint Chiefs of Staff were doing as JFK was getting his brains blown all over Beadley Plaza. This is, again, on the afternoon of November 22nd, 1963. The following is from a book, The Death of a President, by William Manchester, uh, published in hardcover by Galahad Books, copyright 1967, by William Manchester. What were the Joint Chiefs doing on the afternoon of November 22nd, 1963? Tight security was also enforced in the Pentagon's gold room down the hall from McNamara, where the Joint Chiefs were in session with the commanders of the West German Bundeswehr. General Maxwell Paver, the Chief's elegant scholarly chairman, dominated one side of the table. Opposite him was General Friedrich A. Forch, Inspector General of Bonn's Armed Forces, and by the way, a Third Reich combat veteran. Still more from the death of a president. General Friedrich Forch replied for his comrades that they hoped the injury was not too serious, meaning J- JFK's uh, injuries. The chiefs, 
did not reply. They knew full well how serious they were going to be because many of them were in on it. The piece did not reply, and for the next two hours they put on a singular performance. Aware that the shadow of a new war might fall across them at any time, they continued the talks about dull military details, commenting on proposals by Generals Gerhard Vessel and Huckelheim, and shuffling papers with steady hands. And uh, what's also worth noting is what was scheduled to happen right after that weekend. Again, JFK was killed on Friday, November 22nd of 1963. Trent meeting with their German Bundeswehr counterparts at that precise moment. And the following Monday, the day on, the day on which JFK was buried, uh, Chancellor Ludwig Erhard of Germany was scheduled to come to the U.S. for a state visit. Again, talking about uh, or excerpting the death of a president by William Manchester. Quote, who's going to handle Chancellor Erhard's visit here? JFK inquired. The West German Chancellor was to arrive Monday, and Press Secretary Pierre Salinger wouldn't return until Wednesday. Jacqueline Kennedy expected to resume her official duties in the mansion on Monday, November 25th, at the state dinner for Chancellor Erhard. And uh, as it was, Chancellor Ludwig Erhard, and also the president of Germany, which is a, an ostensibly uh, ceremonial or uh, a, a position that Heinrich Ludke, who was deeply involved with the concentration camps in World War II, they were attending JFK's funeral on the day that they were going to be attending a state dinner. Now, one of the generals who was meeting with the Joint Chiefs on uh, November 22nd, 1963, as JFK was getting his brains blown out, was General Gerhard Vessel. Uh, information about his background was presented in the book Galen Spy of the Century by E.H. Cookridge, published in hardcover by Random House and copyright, uh, European, copy, co- European Copyright Company Limited. Of Gerhard Vessel's background, W-E-S-S-E-L. The new heads of groups, this is, by the way, early in World War II, the new heads of groups and sections were young men whom Galen had noticed during his time in the operations department. One was 27-year-old Captain Gerhard Vessel, the son of a Holstein parson who had joined the Reichswehr a year before Hitler came to power and who, like Galen, had been trained as a gunner. He had fought in 1940 in France as an officer of the Artillery Regiment No. 5, and Galen brought him to FHO, fresh from the War Academy. Vessel became head of Group Soviet Union, whose officers sifted and evaluated the daily reports from the Soviet front, the Russian front, basically. Soon after the war, under the aegis of the CIA, eventually succeeded him, succeeding him, meaning Galen, as the head of federal German intelligence. That was in 1968. One more time. Vessel became head of Group Soviet Union, whose officers sifted and evaluated the daily reports from the front. Soon after the war, under the aegis of the CIA, eventually succeeding him as the head of the federal German intelligence. Gerhard Vessel, in the top 
Galen, intelligence officer on the former Soviet Union, uh, when Galen was running uh, the Eastern Front Intelligence Organization for Hitler, and he went on to do the same thing when Galen jumped to the CIA and to NATO, and finally when it became the Galen Org, that is, became the West German Intelligence Service, now the German Intelligence Service. And again, Vessel was within the whole time, and he succeeded Galen five years after JFK's assassination. Uh, and by the way, uh, a little bit on the background of Ludwig Erhard as well. He was the top economic official of Comrade Adenauer's uh, government, the first post-war German government, and as we looked at, the guy who was basically in charge of that government, he was the gray eminence behind Conrad Adenauer, was uh, Hans Globke, who drew up the law for the protection of German armor and blood. That was the Nazi racial law under, with the, under which the extermination programs took place. Erhard was his top economics official and uh, presided over the uh, re-flow, so to speak, of capital through the remarkable and deadly Borman group that I believe will prove to be the decisive element in human affairs on this planet back into Germany to uh, basically comprise the so-called economic miracle of the Federal Republic. Then Ludwig Erhard succeeded Adenauer as Chancellor of Germany, but we're going to take a look at what Erhard was doing during the Third Reich. We're going to turn to the Splendid Blonde Beast, Money, Law, and Genocide in the 20th Century by Christopher Simpson, uh, published in hardcover by the Grove Press. But as the war turned against the Third Reich, a number of business leaders in the Himmlerkreis, that was basically a circle of industrialists who helped to finance the SS and who in turn got the pick of the SS slave labor pool. We talked about that in uh, AFA program, uh, Miscellaneous Archive Show M11, and also that was recapped in For the Record 511, Uncle Sam and the Swastika. Continuing, but as the war turned against the Third Reich, a number of business leaders in the Himmlerkreis began to cooperate in clandestine and semi-clan... But as the war turned against the Third Reich, a number of business leaders in the Himmlerkreis began to cooperate in clandestine and semi-clandestine contingency planning for the post-war period. Two of the best-known of these groups, the Arbeitskreis für Fregen, I'm not going to attempt to, I'm sure that butchered that pronunciation, Working Group for Foreign Economic Questions and the Kleinerarbeitskreis, or Small Working Group, were nominally sponsored by the Reichsgruppe Industry Association of Major Industrial and Financial Companies. They brought together Blessing, Russia, Kurt von Schroeder, Lindemann, and others from the Himmlerkreis, with other business people such as Hermann, da Hermann Abs, the chairman of Deutsche Bank, Ludwig Erhard, then an economist with the Reichsgruppe Industry and later Conrad Adenauer's most important economic advisor, Ludwig Westwick, RKG Aluminum Industry Non-Ferrous Metals, and Philip 
Rinsna, tobacco shipping and banking, and with Nazi business specialists such as Otto Ohlendorf, the former commander of the Einsatzgruppe D murder troops, and Hans Kerl, K-E-H-R-L, SS business special, SS business specialist, excuse me. Again, one of the top officials uh, planning with the SS and with top German uh, firms for the post-war period, with one more time from uh, The Splendid Blonde Beast by Christopher Simpson. Ludwig Erhard, then an economist with the Reichsgruppe Industry and Labor Comrade Adnauer's most important economic advisor. And I would note in that regard that the policies that Kennedy had undertaken, uh, not only ending the Cold War, but uh, to engage in joint space exploration with the Soviet Union, those were policies that would have been vehemently uh, opposed. In fact, they would have been seen as an existential crisis by the Nazis who had been put right back in power in Germany. The head of the American space program was Werner von Braun, a very important SS officer. Uh, in fact, he was a member of the SS cavalry units, which was sort of like the SS of the SS. He was a Class A war criminal, and both uh, von Braun and Walter Dornberger, who was in charge of the military uh, affairs at Penemünde Nordhausen, the Nazi uh, V-weapons rocketry center, they had both signed contracts with General Electric in December of 1944 to work on GE's version of the V-2 rocket. The probable vehicle for that signing would have been Alan Dulles, head of the Baron Switzerland OSS office, a, a vehement Nazi sympathizer, and also a partner with Sullivan and Cromwell. They had not only incorporated GE in the 19th century, but were the general counsel for GE. Again, Kennedy's plans on uh, ending the Cold War, he was working jointly with Nikita Khrushchev, would have threatened the uh, German plans in Germany and also in space as well. So we shouldn't be too surprised to see these people... Uh, meeting with the Joint Chiefs that very day. They would have been fiercely opposed to what JFK was doing. We're also going to reiterate a little bit about who was in charge of NATO at this point in time. The head of the NATO Permanent Military Committee was a guy named Adolf Huizinger, H-E-U-S-I-N-G-E-R, one of the top through like military officials, and I'm going to reprise a little bit of information from a for the record program number uh, 1200 and uh, 1291. How a network of Nazi propagandists helped lay the groundwork for the war in Ukraine by Evan Reif from Covert Action Magazine of February 3rd of 2023. This is about Franz Halbert the Nazi chief of staff and the person with whom Galen was clearing his activities with the Americans, along with Admiral Karl von Vinitz, who succeeded Hitler as head of state for Nazi Germany. As Karl Oglesby has noted, this indicated that the German chain of command was still in effect while Galen was making his deal with the Americans. 
And Franz Halber, uh, then along with 700 of his fellow Nazi veterans, helped to rewrite the history of the German army in World War II. Halber's job was to rehabilitate Nazism for the benefit of his new American patrons. If the Nazis could be ideologically separated from the German people and the German army, America could use the most useful of Hitler's soldiers in their war against the Soviet Union without raising suspicion. Harvard oversaw a team of 700 former Wehrmacht officers and intentionally set about rewriting history to present the image of a clean Wehrmacht and a German people ignorant of Nazi brutality. His deputy was CIA agent Adolf Heusinger, a Nazi war criminal who was largely responsible for planning the endless massacres of, quote, security warfare, unquote, and was later a commander of both the German army and NATO. He held the post, by the way, of uh, Inspector General of the German Armed Forces. Uh, That was the equivalent of our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Continuing, Heusinger, that is. Through manipulation, fabrication, and widespread censorship, Haber and Heusinger created a complete narrative of themselves and the Wehrmacht as brilliant, noble, and honorable victims of the madman Hitler rather than the monsters who butchered a continent. Haber and Heusinger published reams of fantastical lies with the CMH, saying that the Wehrmacht committed no crimes on the Eastern Front. According to Halber and Heusinger, the Nazis set up markets and cultural centers to buy food from local farmers and hold dances and social events for grateful people. Halber and Heusinger only briefly mentioned problems in the East, saying they were carried out by, quote, Judeo-Bolshevik NKVD infiltrators instead of the noble Wehrmacht. Uh, we're going to go into some of the background here of Adolf Heusinger. He eventually became head of the uh, chairman of the permanent NATO military committee. That is the highest ranking NATO military officer's position, and he had an office in the Pentagon. And if he wasn't present at this meeting with the Joint Chiefs, he was certainly in the Pentagon at that point in time. And one of the things that we've noted, it's also, by the way, in the movie JFK, it's factually accurate, uh, this part of it, and the vast bulk of the movie is, uh, at the time JFK was assassinated, there was a third of an army division in the air over the U.S. Uh, that was being brought back from Europe from Operation Big Lift, the biggest NATO airlift to Europe in the organization's history. As Colonel X, the Donald Sutherland character, noted, uh, they could have been deployed to any area where riots broke out if that had uh, taken place following JFK's assassination. So at the point, at this point in time when JFK is getting his brains blown out, you've got Ludwig Erhard of the Kleinerarbeitskreis coming in for what was supposed to be a state dinner. Turned out to be JFK's funeral on Monday, November 25th of 1963. And the Joint Chiefs are meeting with, uh, their American, with their German counterparts. And you've got Adolf Heusinger as the top NATO military officer, and he also had an office physically in the Pentagon. And it was 
through the Galen organization that ultimately Heusinger was able to achieve his rise in post-World War II Germany. And again, this is basically what the AIs are going to learn from. Okay, you like this? Oh, boy. I'm going to repeat some, actually we're going to access information from the book American Swastika by Charles Hyam, published in hardcover by Doubleday and Company, copyright 1985. By the way, this is a successor to Trading with the Enemy, another brilliant book by Charles Hyam. By World War II, Heusinger was at the highest level of the German general staff. By 1944, he was very much in unofficial charge of the extraordinary Galen operation. At the end of the war, he skillfully turned coat and emerged unscathed from the early interrogatory staffs of the Nuremberg war crimes trials. He provoked the contempt of Goering, among others, when he provided the statements needed to add a weight of evidence against the accused. He was cleared as a war criminal and went around calling himself, quote, an American consultant, unquote, a term later, a term later echoed by the State Department in importing him to the United States. Although he was frequently listed as one of those who planned the abortive assassination of Hitler in 1944, he was in fact one of the few who stood by the Führer in his hour of need. He knew of Hitler's lust for power, and it is estimated that he was responsible for liquidating some 800,000 Jews on the Eastern Front under Hitler's personal instruction. Colonel General Jogel, his immediate superior, was hanged for these crimes on October 16, 1946, and Heusinger went free. He was lucky that, like Schellenberg, he was on the second rung of power and virtually unknown. When Heusinger was released in 1948, he was part of the Bureau Galen. His old subordinate had given him a job even when he was still in prison. During a mere two years in jail, he was able to be a useful Nazi contact, like Otto Skorzemi in Dachau. Galen, following 13 months of briefing at the War Department, was the first to give Heusinger a real taste of what power in the United States hierarchy might mean. And because Heusinger had a special knowledge of the Russian region, listing, one more time, and because Heusinger had a special knowledge of the Russian region, liaising with SD Foreign Intelligence Specialist Walter Schellenberg and using Schellenberg's IPP operation, he would undoubtedly be useful to the Americans. Heusinger spent three years with the Bureau Galen. He helped Galen reconstitute the Gestapo under American cover. He also helped create a new German general staff and encouraged Galen in setting up the Special Bureau when Germany became a republic under Adenauer in 1955. Heusinger accepted Adenauer's invitation to plan the new West German army at the same time that Galen set up his own network. Heusinger reached his apotheosis on April Fool's Day, 1961, when he appeared resplendent in uniform as the central fixture of a gala occasion. 
Hoisinger became the chairman of the Permanent Military Committee of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization at an elaborate ceremony in Washington's State Department building. President John F. Kennedy, accompanied by General Lyman Lemitzer, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, opened the meeting. It was the first convocation of NATO's Permanent Military Committee. The president warmly welcomed the Nazi chairman and announced that NATO would now be allowed contributions of nuclear arms as a fourth power. Thus was achieved the fulfillment of the dreams of those middle-level German Gestapo, SS, SD, and military commanders who were perfectly happy to see their inconveniently famous leaders perish in Simad capsule or the hangman's noose. For those the public did not know and therefore could not identify, the future was unassailably bright. Well, yes, indeed. I note that one of the people present at this ceremony, which JFK uh, welcomed Adolf Heusinger into his position as the top military officer in NATO, Heusinger undoubtedly uh, involved in some way with JFK's killing, that was Lyman Lemnitzer. Lyman Lemnitzer drew up the Operation Northwoods provocations that were initially to be used to uh, create terrorist incidents that would motivate the American people to back a U.S. invasion of Cuba. Uh, eventually, Lyman Lemnitzer uh, was replaced as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He, by the way, had been the top military officer involved with Alan Dulles and the Nazi intelligence elite in Operation Sunrise, which was ostensibly a separate surrender of the Nazi and SS forces in northern Italy in for the record programs 1147 to 1150. I talk about that as one of the top top incidents or events in the creation of the Bureau Galen. I would note, too, that uh, Lyman Lemnitzer, in addition to being the top military officer involved with Dulles in Sunrise was later, a character witness for General Carl Wolf at the Nuremberg Trials. Carl Wolf was Heinrich Himmler's personal adjutant. And again, this is something that was really well, it is only too representative of what really goes on behind the scenes in our national security establishment. If some of my fears concerning AIs, of what they might do, uh, appear alarmist, uh, off the wall, what have you, uh, just consider that AIs learn from us. And several years ago, they have learned to develop their own language. They have learned to lie. And a Microsoft chatbot had gone full-on Nazi in 24 hours. And what we're going to do is to listen to a little bit of the conclusion to both L2 and also for the record programs 968 and 997. I was talking about this in January of 1995. And again, one of the things that I talk about in Photo Record 968 and 997 is that AIs learn from us. Well, what 
Are they going to learn? Uh, they're not going to learn the BS that uh, we have been steadily fed. They are going to learn the real deal. And the real deal is that the powers that be in this country really liked Nazism. And they liked the SS. And ultimately, the unyieldingly brutal annihilationist social Darwinism of the Nazi SS will become what the AIs learn, because that is what has been learned in the corridors of power. And as they look around at these hopeless meat puppets, they will conclude that they, and not us, are the fittest. And we're going to put these in uh, control of weapon systems. You have got to be kidding. That 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 will not work at all. And again, just bear in mind who was who was front and center as JFK was getting his brains blown all over Dealey Plaza. And I mention this because this is only too typical, not only of what one finds in the JFK assassination, but also what one finds within our national security establishment. So this is not something that is a reach. We're now going to listen to the conclusion of Lecture L2, and also the conclusion of For the Record Programs 968 and 997. And I'm speaking in Santa Monica in January of 1995. From BBC News of December 2nd of 2014, article by Rory, R-O-R-Y, Selwyn Jones, C-E-L-L-A-N hyphen Jones, J-O-N-E-S, Stephen Hawking warns artificial intelligence could end mankind. Professor Stephen Hawking, one of Britain's preeminent scientists, has said that efforts to create thinking machines pose a threat to our very existence. He told the BBC the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. That was at the tail end of 2014. In January of 1995, roughly 20 years earlier, I sounded the following warning at the end of the lecture I alluded to at the beginning of the program. This is L2. The future, technology, theocracy, and the thousand-year Reich. Thinking about uh, the paradigm that would be used, the personality paradigm that would be used by artificial intelligence, it would be the brutal social Darwinism being manifested in, in many areas now, but originally tracking back to the Nazi SS. And in an attempt to get basically scoured human beings, a humanity minus uh, the warts, the zits, and the pubic hairs on the toilet seat, so to speak, ultimately AI could decide that, well, we are what is superior. Again, at the end of 2014, Stephen Hawking warned about AI. Twenty years earlier, I issued the following warning in January of 1995. I think that the imperfections of human beings, and human beings are highly imperfect, uh, may ultimately lead to the creation of artificial intelligences. It would not surprise me if, if we survive long enough that at some point in the future we might create an artificial intelligence, a machine, which uh, would actually represent something of a life form, in that it would be self-conscious and intelligent enough to regard itself as separate from its actual creators. 
it would not surprise me if these machines eventually decided to turn on their creators. Now, we're talking about something that might take place a thousand, thousands of years in the future and decide that basically the machines should supplant people altogether because people are sloppy. You know, they have cells, they get sick, they have emotions, they have feelings. Uh, and however much we try to get them to sit on the pack, it just doesn't work. However, a machine can sit on the pack because it doesn't have any feelings. You just don't put any circuitry in the, that part of its uh, construction. Uh, it would not surprise me if we eventually, at some point in the future, built machines which replaced us quite consciously, saying that people are stupid. You know, they're stupid, they're weak, they have emotions. They are inefficient, and they are not really in keeping with the dictates of the corporate state. If we created a machine at some point in the future, maybe 10,000 years or 20,000 years from now, which simply put us out of existence because we are not efficient. Again, that was yours truly from Lecture L2, Technology, Theocracy, and the Thousand-Year Reich, warning about AIs 20 years before Stephen Hawking did. Uh, and we are indeed, it appears, summoning the demon, and I think it may be possible to see how the human experience is going to end. And borrowing from T.S. Eliot, uh, if Hawking is right and if my prognostications were correct, the end of the world may come something like this. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with open the pod bay doors, Hal. Hal, open the pod bay doors. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do that. That again from January of 1995. That was the conclusion of Lecture L2, and also for the records 968 and 997. And again, I hope I'm wrong about what uh, is, what they're going to be uh, doing, but I, I'm afraid that I'm right. Of course, one of the things, one of the many things that was a legacy of the Vietnam War was Agent Orange and the herbicides we sprayed all over, uh, not only Laos, but not only Vietnam, I should say, but Laos, in the New York Times Sunday Book Review section of April 9th of 2023, there was a review uh, by Elizabeth D. Samet, S-A-M-E-T, of a book called The Long Reckoning, A Story of War, Peace, and Redemption in Vietnam. That was authored by George Black. And a little bit about uh, the legacy of the Vietnam War. And the Vietnam War itself was one of the major aspects of the legacy of JFK's assassination, as we have dealt with at great length in many programs, including the just-concluded 27-part series of interviews with Jim Jamil and many of his collaborators in the Oliver Stone documentary, JFK Revisited. From the book review. Black focuses his attention largely on Vietnam's Quang Tri and Thua Pien provinces along the Laotian border. Quote, All the worst legacies of the war were concentrated here, he writes, an area smaller than the state of Connecticut. The nation also unleashed more bombs on Quang Tri alone than had been dropped on Germany during World War II. A massive defoliation campaign to reduce cover for Vietnamese ambushes, known as Operation Ranch Hand, also began in 1961. Soon the U.S. government began to authorize crop destruction as well. Black describes Ranch Hand as, quote, without precedent in history by using all the tools of science, technology, and air power to lay waste to a country's natural environment, unquote. 
By contrast, when the destruction of Japan's rice crop had been proposed in 1944, Admiral William Leahy, President Franklin B. Roosevelt's chief of staff, quote, vetoed the idea, saying it would violate every Christian ethic that I have ever heard of in all known laws of war, unquote. Black offers various measures of the resulting devastation in the Vietnam-Laos borderlands. Perhaps none is more suggestive of the magnitude than this statistic. Between 1964 and 1973, U.S. aircraft flew 580,344 sorties over Laos, which averaged out to one every eight minutes, 24 hours a day, for nine years. And again, uh, that is part of the legacy of the Vietnam War. Note the change, though. And again, the AIs will be learning from us, not from uh, Admiral Leahy. And I would note that in addition to Agent Orange, which was developed by Friedrich Fritz Hoffman, one of the paperclip scientists brought in at the end of the war, uh, so too the Internet, which the AIs may be using to destroy us, also grew out of the same overlapping uh, series of DARPA projects. However, that will be in our next subject, our next program, I should say. This concludes, for the record, program number 1296, The End and the Beginning, Part 3. This is being recorded on April 10th of the year 2023. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun. <laughs>